Welcome to Professoring, the show that gives you the R&R. The real and the realer about life in academia. I'm Anthony Ocampo, sociologist, writer, Los Angelino, puppy parent, Virgo, and your co-host. And I am Badia Ahad, literary scholar, native Chicagoan, super stepmom, amateur golfer, and your co-host. And today on this episode of Professoring, we'll be talking about something that's hard to do. Breaking up! Breaking, Breaking up, up is, is hard, hard to do. To do. It's hard to not <laughs> sing the song, but I know that we're taping, and so I'm never going to sing the song. You're, but all I know is in my head right now. You're singing the song. I'm singing the song. Uh huh. Who Breaking sings that song like, anyway? It's like from the 1950s or something. Oh, it is. Watch some like musicologist like write in and tell us like how wrong we are. My intro to this song was actually from an episode of Beverly Hills 90210, where. Brenda, Kelly, and Donna sang this song. Did they? They did. I actually watched that show, but I don't have the kind of memory that allows me to call those tiny moments mm. from pop, pop culture. culture. So that's anyway, impressive. Thank you. I wish I did, though. I feel like I'm going to develop that as a talent. You should. I'm going to become like a master at trivia. So folks don't know this, but in preparation for this podcast, I emailed Badia a list of things that we could randomly inject into our episodes, one of which was pop culture references. He did. And horoscopes. He did. I feel like we've covered so many of those. We did. <laughs> we did. But anyway, back to back to topic. Breaking we up. We were talking about breaking up. So tell us, Badia, what's on the agenda for today? In academic life. There's a lot of collaboration, right? We have people that have to work together all the time to write articles, to do their research, all that good stuff, right? So you're always working with someone uh, in graduate school, you have your dissertation advisor, what have you. And sometimes those relationships are wonderful. And when they are, you can produce beautiful things together mm -hmm. and it's so harmonious and it's just you know match made in heaven right i'll let you know when that happens for me <laughs> hence the topic of today's program <laughs> because since so much of academic life is about collaborating and working together there's also the very difficult part of that which is breaking up sometimes these collaborations are not matches that are made in heaven and sometimes you do not work harmoniously together and sometimes for your own health and well-being and maybe even for the well-being of the project you gotta break up yes but it's hard to do it is very hard to do it is very hard to do because there's a lot of things that come into play there's yes. everything like power dynamics there's yes. i mean for so many academics a lot of our projects ha are, are so personally driven because of some mission we have or some cause we have that's important. So obviously, if you're working on something with someone who also is highly invested in something, you're going to come in with two very strong minded people or more mm -hmm. that are going to inevitably have different opinions about it. And sometimes that can 
lead to some interesting things. Yeah, it can, especially I think to your point when there are uneven power dynamics involved, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do you do the breaking up when you're the person who is on the lower tier oh, yeah. of that power dynamic? I'll tell you a little bit about my breaking up experience, but I'm interested in knowing because you made the little comment about like you would let me know when the harmonious collaboration happens. So that's a signal to me that you have something to share. I do. I do. I, ugh. (laughs) So disclaimer, I, I'm a sociologist. That's my title. That's what I teach. That's what my PhD is in, but in undergrad, I didn't major in sociology. I probably took like one or two sociology classes and to be honest, haphazardly chose sociology <laughs> as a PhD program. And so when I got to grad school, I was like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> More than the normal first year student who's like, I don't know what's going on. So the book that inspired me to go to graduate school in sociology was this book, Racial Formation in the U.S. by Michael mm, Omi yeah. and Howard I'm Winnard. very familiar, yeah. And I turned the book around and I saw, oh, they're in sociology. I'll do that, <laughs> which is not the way to choose a PhD program. <laughs> Friends who have yet to do That's it. so well-informed. I love your research method. Yeah. That's I wanted just... to do ethnic studies as a PhD, but, you know, yeah. folks have opinions. They have and, opinions. Mm-hmm. And I think it's great. And had I been not 20 years old, I probably would have had the courage to do it. But mm-hmm. anyway, I ended up in sociology first year. Didn't know what was happening. And like many people, I got an assigned advisor (laughs) who was new to the university who didn't seem like they knew what was happening either. Mm -hmm. And so I I felt very lost in the first year. And so this happened a lot in my graduate program. There was a a particular professor there who obviously I'm not going to say by name. They were very, very open about working with anybody. Uh, and so I became one of one of this professor's graduate students. They were my advisor for many years, four years, mm-hmm. four and a half years. And part of the reason that it worked as a collaboration really well is because uh, this professor was very involved and very hands-on, which is what I needed. Uh, This was a professor, you send a draft, they'll send it back to you within, I kid you not, 24 hours with Mm -hmm. full-on track changes. Mm -hmm. Something that's unheard of Mm -hmm. in graduate school experiences. So this person was phenomenal at providing this type of line-by-line feedback for your work. And so it worked for a very long time. I not only worked with this professor who uh, also had a community of grad students, I felt like I had a a family of fellow graduate students that worked with this professor and it was great until until it, it was time to do the dissertation. Full disclosure, I had two dissertation projects in graduate school. The first one I did was squarely aligned with this professor's area of research. Mm -hmm. But it got to the point where I felt like this professor was so controlling. And there were certain moments where the advice that was being given, I knew in my gut 
was not the type of advice that I needed for how I wanted my career to move forward. Mm-hmm. On some level, it was just a matter of what kind of sociologist did I want to become? Yeah. What kind of sociologist did this person think I should become? Mm-hmm. We diverged. And it got to the point where I was so scared of this relationship power dynamic that I ended up switching dissertation topics just <gasps> to break up. So wow. it gave me an excuse to break up with this professor. I mean, just to give you a sense of how scared I was as a graduate student to leave this relationship because Mm -hmm. I would leave this relationship with the professor but also the fellow grad students I changed dissertation topics just so I had an excuse to leave and the moment I changed I was immediately ghosted so they emailed the department was like I'm not working with this student if this person saw me in the hallway wouldn't say hi to me. Oh, wow. If I was walking with other people, they'd say hi to them, <gasps> but wouldn't say hi to me like I wasn't there. I mean, they like wanted you to know. They wanted me to know. That and so, you were on the X list. I was on the X list. And I'm sorry. No, no. I think obviously it hit me really hard because I didn't know any better. I was I'm a graduate student and I kid you not, I like twitched. I had like a tick for a good month because I was so dependent on this relationship. I'm not the only graduate student that's developed a tick. Let me just say that. (laughs) It's not funny. It's just, (laughs) but it's, it's serious. I've seen it. I've seen it. You're like, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. It's so sad. And let me just be clear. This professor works great for many others, including some of my friends, Mm -hmm. but for what I wanted, the type of work I wanted to do, the type of scholar and writing I wanted to do, it just created yeah. differences. And it was very hard. It was yeah. very traumatic. And, you know, I'll be upfront. It was one of the most excruciating experiences of my PhD program, but also one of the most important because I was forced to do inventory and really have conversations with myself about what is it, who am I, what am I about, independent yeah. of this towering figure figure so that's my breakup well unlike you i did not change my topic however i also had a dissertation advisor breakup oh my i did not know this yeah it was really traumatic i would say as you were talking i was trying to think of you know what was the breaking point and i honestly don't remember the one thing that caused me to want to break up with this mm-hmm. person. But I do remember precisely like where I was sitting in my apartment at the time. I remember writing an email. Well, the odd thing is that I wrote an email to the graduate program director at the mm-hmm. time. And I said, I cannot work like this anymore. I've had a very good experience here for the most part, but I am going to be leaving the program. Oh, wow. You yeah. were like, I'm, I was just going to leave. Like I, I just felt like I'm just a, like a lowly graduate student. They're going to support their colleague and they're going to circle ranks and I'm probably not going to be able to finish here. So I, at that time, I already had my master's. I felt like I would just work 
apply somewhere else for the next academic year and try to finish up the PhD elsewhere. Isn't it funny how academia or graduate school makes you think that that's the rational choice? (laughs) (laughs) But I had it all worked out. I was, because I... I think that I was already in the mindset of no one's going to really look out for me. So what am I going to, what plan can I enact that I have complete agency and control over? Like I can control quitting. I can control applying to somewhere else. Like I just felt like I don't know how they're going to help me or if they're going to help me. um, But I cannot stay in this situation. I mean, it was so bad that... Like, literally, I would give this person a chapter, and I would get it back, like, three to four months later. Oh, my God. That's like a semester. I was progressing at a snail's pace because I was getting zero feedback. In addition to that, when they wanted to give me feedback, they would want me to come to their house to get feedback. And I don't know, does this sound terrible of me, but... Before we would even start talking about my work, I would have to sit there and engage in like a three to four hour conversation about what was going on in that person's life. Oh, no. Yeah. That is just one million percent inappropriate. First of all, the demand I, that you I would, go to their house. At the house. Yeah, I would be at their house for like six to seven hours. And we would have spent maybe like 45 minutes like talking about my project first of all i don't want anybody in my house for six to seven hours <laughs> let alone a student right. so there was that and then came like the what i in hindsight now the just horrible abuses of power asking me to babysit which i did on a couple of occasions and then not even offer to give me a dime Oh like, my God. I would like watch this person's children for five, six hours. And then they would say stuff like, it's so great that you like kids and this is just like a lot of fun for you. Like totally framing it as if like they were doing me a favor by allowing me to spend time with their children. <laughs> so kudos to the graduate program director at the time who, of course, he called me and is like, um, you know, you're a really great student. We want to keep you. What's happening? And were they aware? They weren't aware. Oh, they weren't aware. I mean, at this point, I probably had like a laundry list of like 20 things that were happening. And I think when I got to like number five on the list, I could hear him saying like under his breath, like, that's, that's bullshit. That's just bullshit. Like, he just, I mean, so for me, though, that felt so affirming. Like, at least I'm talking to this other person who, as I'm saying these things, he's not trying to defend what's happening, that he's actually like, this is not, you know, I could hear him say, like, just, he was vibing with me. Like, he got it. And by the time I finished, he was, like, horrified. And he said, you know, I'm going to ask that you hold off on resigning or, or leaving and can you come to my office? We're gonna figure out a new advisor. We're gonna do this. Once his office, the person who ended up being my advisor was actually sitting in his office when I got there. And he was working with so many students, I didn't think he would even take me on, but graciously he did. 
and it ended up being a wonderful collaboration. Uh, we're still extremely good friends to this day. He was everything that I think you should be an advisor, but it was horrible. So unlike you, the person did not ghost me after that situation. In fact, they contacted me like all the time for like a period of time. Wow. Like calling me like 20 times a day. Like on the telephone. Yes. What is with <laughs> what? This, in hindsight, sounds bananas, of course, but yeah, this stuff, you're not the only person that has told me absurd stories about some of the things that graduate advisors. I was asked to get dry cleaning, pick up dry cleaning, like literally, can you get my dry cleaning on your way over to my house to not talk about your project? <laughs> Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that was my breakup story. And it was, I mean, I, I feel bad about the whole thing, even to this day, which should say something about how much you're scarred by that, because oh, yeah. that was totally not my fault. And I, and I still feel bad about the fact that it happened. I know what you mean. And what's different. So there was these exploitative requests, like the babysitting, the dry cleaning. And what's inter- I think what's parallel between me and you is that we both swam in our own heads for such a long time mm-hmm. and endured. It was a couple steps until we got to breaking point. Yeah, it took totally. actually a lot of steps that probably took more than months, probably years. And I, I, I feel like this not so great relationship. I knew it, it started off good, like I said, but it took a turn in my second year of the program when they said you have to submit drafts and if you want to pass your master's paper you got to submit drafts every monday and every wednesday because you're not progressing fast enough oh wow and if i missed a day i would get some message that let me know that if you don't follow through you're not going to pass your master's as, as if that's that was some objective yeah measure yeah and so for months I had this thing this threat of dangled in front of me that I would not pass my master's paper if I didn't submit every Monday and every Wednesday so that they could provide line by line feedback and then magically somehow the due date of the master's paper I passed so I knew that it was purely a scare tactic yeah. but I should have known then that that was I mean let's just call it what it is it was manipulative yeah to do that. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So yeah, I think that um, the breaking up thing is real. I, I would say that it's not always just about breaking up with people, mm-hmm. that I've also had the experience of breaking up with projects. Ooh, I, know. I like this one. Well, I don't like it because I still feel like a shitty person for having <laughs> broken up with <laughs> a project. And I what I mean by that is that you know, a lot of times people will ask you to contribute to if they're doing like a special uh, issue for a journal or if they're doing like an edited collection for a book, they want you to contribute something. Yeah. And, you know, I'm notoriously good about saying no. So yeah. I actually wear it as a badge of pride that uh-huh. I can actually say no to things that I don't want to be doing. Yeah. But this request came from a really good friend and she told me all the compelling reasons why you know I should contribute to this piece that she was working on or this project that she was working on and 
my inclination was to say no the whole time, but I didn't. I said yes. You went against your gut. I went against my gut. It was writing about something that I just wasn't even thinking about anymore. So it was attached to my old research. Yeah. I was out of that headspace. I was not as you know familiar with the literature anymore because I kind of moved on. And so every time I sat down to write, I was instantly paralyzed. And it, I felt like a horrible person because I could not get anything on the page because I was not in that headspace anymore and I couldn't do it. My brain wanted to be working on this new stuff that I was really excited about, not looking backwards. And after like, I would say a good three months, <laughs> It took me three months of trying. I was like, I cannot get anything. I was like, and I am actually not someone, knock on wood, thank the universe, who has a hard time writing. I mean, yeah. I don't have, you know, writer's block, uh, significantly at least. I don't have a lot of resistance to writing. I find it a joyful activity for the most yeah. part. So the fact that I was feeling so intensely resistant to this it was everything that I needed to know about what I need. I mean, I, that told me everything I needed to know about how to move forward, which was to not move forward and to actually write the worst email ever. Oh, you wrote an email. You didn't call. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm giving Anthony the, the death stare right now because just pile it on. Just pile it on, Anthony. No, I just felt like a horribly shitty person. But I did what I had to do. Yeah. Because I could not produce anything so that was a breakup that was 100% my fault mm -hmm. because I should have never agreed to it in the first place yeah and I also don't think that I did I do this I don't think I did normally I would try to recommend somebody else yeah but I was like I, I just I know I can't do it <laughs> so good luck with your project and yeah I, I felt worse like I said because it was a friend. But that's your compass, though. I feel like that's your internal compass telling you what to do. And did your friend feel some kind of way or react? She's very professional anyway. So it was a I understand email. And I didn't think that she would react poorly. But how can you not be slightly pissed off? If only because if you're anything like me, when you have something already crossed off, the like she had already found a person to contribute. She'd already kind of crossed that piece off of her list. Yeah. And now I'm like putting that responsibility back on her plate that she thought was kind of closed out. Yeah. So I, you know, even if she was like really nice about it, which I believe that she was, it still made me feel bad because it's making somebody else do more work. Yeah, of course. I did something similar with a project where I agreed to it and was wholeheartedly going to do it. I was asked to contribute to this edited volume about like this Chicano studies um, edited volume. And my mm. part was to write a piece about queer Latinx men. Right around the time it was about to be due, the Pulse shooting happened. And the Pulse shooting, as folks know, happened in the context of a, a queer Latino social function event in Orlando. And I just... I couldn't do any writing because my research was embedded in communities like this and I just could not get myself to do mm -hmm. it. So I listened to my internal compass and I was very scared because this person's very prolific in the field, mm -hmm. but I was, I, you know how you said you just couldn't, yeah. you just couldn't move on it. 
I just had to follow my gut and yeah. just and just drop out of it. And obviously I did feel the same way that you did. And I still feel, oh my gosh, when I run into this person at a conference, I'm like, veer left. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> but I'm sure they understand because, yeah. I mean, it's not that I was, I just didn't want to do it. Right. I just couldn't. Well, you know, the funny thing is I always knew back in my single days mm. when I had a breakup, if I were the person doing the breaking up, I always knew that it was the right decision even in, when it felt bad, if, if I fell asleep like a baby that night. Like if I got like the oh. best night's sleep, that's how I always knew that I had made the right decision. So with this project, to be quite honest, even though I felt like a horrible person writing that email and yeah. doing it, I was so relieved. Like I felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders when I broke up because I didn't have to worry about this thing that was, you know, this kind of emotional burden anymore. So it was the very same feeling that I had when I used to break up with people. I've never broken up with someone. I've never been the dumper. You know, you're like the third person who I've talked to in the past year who's told me that. Really? They've only been dumped. They've never dumped anybody. I've only been dumped. That's oh. going to be the title of my TV show. <laughs> only been dumped. <laughs> Catch it on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I have been a dumper a couple of times. Ooh. It's very empowering. I mean, I wouldn't say try it now because you're in a very committed relationship. But yes, like, a very, very happy. Yes, very happy. happy. Yes. Don't worry, but, Joe. Right, right. No, no. Joe has nothing to worry about. Um, Breaking up with projects, I think, is, I think it's an important skill. Yes. Because here's the thing, folks. Just because something's a great idea, in theory, also remember that if you agree to something, you're going to have to clock the hundreds or thousands of hours to do it yeah so i've actually broken up with myself mm -hmm. when it came to doing a potential research project mm -hmm. i mentioned the breakup with my advisor and i switched dissertation topics but to be honest there was also a part of me my first dissertation topic was doing eco uh, an economic sociology project mm -hmm. that was in the field of immigration i was studying remittances which is basically money that immigrants send back to the homeland mm. and it was a project that in theory i cared about my my family is a they're immigrants they remit money to the philippines i got a lot of support to do this project because it was quote unquote a hot topic mm -hmm. but in my gut i knew that it wasn't the right project yeah. for me and despite having done a year's worth of research or more, I think, I, I broke up with that dissertation. Yeah. And I slept soundly about See? the fact that I broke up with this dissertation. So you have been a dumper. I have I been mean, a dumper. I mean, granted, it's been only to yourself, but To still. myself, which fits yeah. my title of only been dumped. <laughs> That's what your title. <laughs> that is true, you were both the, the dumper and the dumped in, yeah. that, in that moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've done that. Like I've, I've had like a R and r where they wanted significant revisions. Uh -huh. And I was like, do I care about this anymore? Do all this work to bring this thing to a close? Mm -hmm. Nah, I'm good. I mean, yeah. like I literally have left R and R's on the table. Like 
uh, I'll come back to it maybe if I still care about it one day. And I just have never gone back. So that that tells me a lot. Um, So have you ever broken up with a academic friend? There are endless stories about people breaking up with collaborators because, for example, people aren't pulling their own weight or, Mm -hmm. or it's just not they find out they're good friends, but maybe not good research collaborators Mm -hmm. for X, Y, and Z reasons. It's the same reason why folks that are friends shouldn't always be roommates, Mm -hmm. right? Have you ever found yourself breaking up with colleagues? No. 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 Because I have so few academic friends, quote unquote, to Uh begin with, that no, I have not. How about... I, I'm an Aquarian. I'm a BFF collector. Okay. So we don't break up with friends. You don't friends. break up with friends. I... I mean, it's hard to actually become a friend that's, to me, I at think least. that you have a... I have like a... Initiation process. Betting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a multi-year betting scenario. I had to get all my letters of recommendation in to yes. become Bidia's friend. So she's not. she's not... She's not lying. So if you if you cross the friend threshold with uh-huh. me, then you you pretty much done a lot to be there in the first place. So, That's good. so I don't have a lot of breakups because how would I have you, a process. Different question. How would you so we both think that this internal compass that we have is important, but any other quick tips before we head to our commercial about yes, you know you should break up, but the how to Break yes. up, what words to use. It's not you, it's me. It's not you, it's me. But other concrete you know, you say things. That, but you say that jokingly, but I think that that is not a bad way to go about it. Because actually, maybe it is you. You know, whether it's even you that does not want to withstand a toxic collaboration relationship, mm-hmm. you know. And I think it's very easy to just be direct, to be collegial. Those two things are not mutually exclusive, right? Mm -hmm. But my primary point of advice would be to make a clean break. Oh, yeah. I I would not leave anything on the table. I mean, I think sometimes people hedge when they're breaking up and they'll say something like, you know, I'm really busy working with these other projects, but I would love to pick this up with you again at a later date. If you really don't want to actually do that, yeah, then don't say that. Like that's that that's makes true. it sound better and it might make you feel better in writing it. But if the person does circle back to you, then you have to kind of go through the breakup all all over again, and you have to, you know. And then it makes what you said before seem disingenuous Ugh. because it was. So my advice would be to, if you really don't want to do the project, if you're really not invested, just be clear, be collegial, and be clean. Clean break. Clean break. Clean break. Oh, man. You're you're in my head right now. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I agree with Padilla that clean breaks are good. To be honest, they're harder, but I think that it shows that you care more. Because here's the thing. If you want to work on something, that's the thing that gets you up in the morning without an alarm clock. That's how I am with the projects that I love. Mm -hmm. I don't even need an alarm clock. I just wake up because I'm excited to work on it. But things where I'm even like just 80% into it, not a good idea. 
not a good idea. So uh, I think at the end of the day, folks, you got to give yourself permission to follow that internal compass. It's totally okay. People evolve. We change. Our interests change. Even though you were into something in the year 2018, doesn't mean you got to be into it in 2020. And that's totally okay. So if if nothing else, let me give you permission <laughs> to say it's all right to move on from a project. Yeah, and to spend your energies on something that you love. I would also say, though, just to as a bit of a caveat, mm-hmm. that even writing that you're really 100% invested in and passionate about can be hard sometimes. Yeah. So I don't want people to feel like they should just walk away from things <laughs> and make it hard because writing, even things that you love, yeah. it's not easy, right? But there is a different feeling between writing something that you know, you're having some momentary resistance around and something that you feel like you actually are 100% resistant to that. Like you just can't get anything on the page. You're not interested in it. You're bored with a topic. You're, you know, and you may even go through periods of boredom with topics that you love. Mm-hmm. And people. And people, yes, yeah, that, that is true. But I just wanted to make a bit of a disclaimer there that, you know, just because it's not all running smoothly 100% of the time doesn't mean that you shouldn't pursue your current project. That is true. Because I know a lot of people, especially coming out of the dissertation, I can't tell you how many people want to throw their dissertations in the trash and start a new book. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I coach people all the time and they say, you know, I'm working on this dissertation, but I'm really not into it anymore, blah, blah, blah. And they tell me all these reasons that they don't want to deal with that. And they're mm-hmm. going to start this new project that they're really excited about. And that's the project that they're going to use to go for tenure. And I'm like, nope, you already have a book, yeah. your dissertation. Don't, as like everyone feels that way. Uh-huh. So don't fall into that feeling. But I can yeah. tell you, I would say eight out of 10 people Uh that I coach who come out of graduate school want to throw their dissertations in the trash and start a new project for their uh, tenure case. And I tell them 100% of the time, bad idea. Yeah, yeah. Don't get fooled by that uh, new project energy. I know. It's like looking at like the hot person. Uh-huh. They look so good from across the room. They look yeah. so enticing. You got this old dissertation here, so yeah. all beat up and tired. And you're like, it's time for me to trade in this project for a new thing. Yeah. But let me tell you, that old thing probably got you your job. Yes, yes. <laughs> so there's some value there. And I say capitalize off of those existing words on the page refine them, make them better, and then you can move on to those wonderful new ideas. Take a break, not break up. Yes. With that, we're going to take a break. With NCFDD, we'll hear a couple things from them, and then we'll be back for our peer review. The National Center for Faculty Development and Diversity, or NCFDD, is a professional development organization with the mission of changing the face of power in the academy. We aim to strengthen the higher education system and improve the academic experience by offering specialized coaching and mentoring to faculty, postdocs, and graduate students. Please visit us at www.facultydiversity.org to learn more about our services. 
including institutional membership, our faculty success program, and our on-campus workshops. Welcome back, everybody. It's me, Anthony, and it's Badia as well, obviously. Because you clearly forgot who we were. <laughs> we are here to do our usual segment, Peer Review, which folks know is likened to the peer review process with journal articles or books. Everyone knows what peer review is. We have mixed feelings about it because we always get reviewer number one, who is real, real nice, and reviewer number two, who is not a little bit not nice. And so every episode we pick a topic where we are going to be the reviewers. reviewers. Jinx. I don't feel like we said that at precisely the same time. <laughs> I did. That was a waste of jinx. Peer review topic for the day <laughs> is... Diversity committees. Oh my God, I love diversity. And the committees? And not the committees. <laughs> All right, so... Diversity committees. Diversity committees. What are diversity committees? Diversity committees are those committees that institutions create to say that they care about diversity. So they put... All of the underrepresented people they can find, the queer folks, the women, the people of color. And I mean, if you check off all three of those, you are definitely going to be on the diversity committee. You are the, the if you're star. you're a queer person of color, oof. I am a queer person of color. <laughs> oh, if you're a woman, you would be. I'm not a woman. But you would be like on even more diversity committees. I would be. But diversity committees are, I mean, I can just feel the shade in the room about that description <laughs> of diversity committees because in some ways where's the lie where's the lie here's the deal it's it's extra labor you mm -hmm. got to have a meeting you got to talk about issues that, about diversity that are very very deep seated right right you'll have these endless conversations about we need more faculty diversity we need more student diversity but you know what doesn't happen actually hiring <laughs> diversity, actually admitting diversity. And that's where I think the frustration for me comes with diversity committees is that imagine, you know, in the holidays that you go to the department store and they put, you, you can get your, your gifts gift wrapped. Yes. Like with, you know, special gift wrap paper and a nice bow and you can present it and show that like, look at this beautiful present. Yes. But when you open it, there's actually nothing in the box. That's what <laughs> diversity committees are for me. I didn't know where you were going with that, but, but I kind of agree. <laughs> I mean, again, I think that those committees are generally formed because people, and when I mean people, I mean institutions recognize that they have a diversity problem, yeah, right? And it's so- It's always because of a problem. Right, they have a problem and they say, well, let's get a committee to talk about this problem. But I think the problem with diversity committees is that that's where it stops and starts uh -huh. or starts and stops is that, you know, you form the committee and then the committee ends up being the solution to the problem. A committee is not a solution. To no, the problem. it's not. And that's the problem, right? That they feel like, well, we've addressed this thing because we formed a committee for it. And, you know, what's, what's fascinating is that. I feel like diversity committees are a way to uh, for 
people that are not under the category of diversity to absolve themselves of some sort of guilt they have about something that happened. Mm. So yeah. that's my take. And yeah. it's folks that, let, let's be honest, sometimes I am floored. I've seen some diversity committees where in my mind I'm like, you have not lived the experience of the people whose concerns you're trying to address. And mm-hmm. so I can't tell you how many times I've seen wh- like white-headed diversity committees. You know what? <laughs> So here's where, you know, maybe I'll be, I don't know if it's reviewer number one or number two. Uh I've actually never seen that. And I would not be mad at that. Oh, I think I know where you're going. Tell us more. Because it's not our problem to fix. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I feel like we have to deal with institutional and structural racism all the time. Yeah. So we're victims of this thing, if uh-huh. you will. And I put victims in scare quotes. So you want to oppress me, <laughs> and then you want to put me on a committee uh-huh. to tell you how to stop <laughs> oppressing me. <laughs> and then you don't listen to me when I'm on the committee. None of the recommendations for this committee are ever taken seriously, it seems. Yeah. So it's like, then I have to like spend all this time talking about my oppression uh-huh. that you caused in the first place and that you're not really that interested. So I have to fix the, the problem yeah. that I don't have anything to do with. Right. I have to take time away from my teaching. I have to take time away from my research to f- address this behemoth, right, of an issue that, you know, I shouldn't be responsible for this. Yeah. And your leisure. Let's not forget that. Well, also, I mean, it would be different. And I would say this, if in exchange for being on these committees that you gave me a course release or that you gave me, you know, you incentivized me Uh in some way as an acknowledgement that this is not what my colleagues who are not people of color are called upon to do. Right. So they get all this free time because... They're not being like oppressed. I just feel like it becomes another form of punishment. Like I'm already being <laughs> punished, and then like you put me on this committee to be punished some more. Oh, and here's so. the, here's the worst part about it. I have seen this where because the powers that be are predominantly white and thus are likely not to be on diversity committees when it comes to the tenure promotion evaluation. Right. When they see diversity committee as a form of service for faculty of color, they don't get how intense that is. Right. And then give the faculty of color the recommendation. You need to do more service. Right. Because you didn't do the accepted service right. things. Well, this is the, the other thing. And this is the last thing I'll say about it. But, you know, the last time I was on a diversity committee, it was as part of a broader, like, institutional thing. And they had a lot of committees. So they had, you know, a committee for faculty affairs. They had a committee for, like, student success. They had a committee for budget and something else. And so I remember when I got asked to chair the diversity committee, because, of course, why not? You look like I look the like a chair, chair. of I a do. diversity committee. <laughs> People say I, I look like a, an administrator all the time, which I... I feel like that's not a compliment. But anyway, I got asked to chair the committee. And I said, you know, what about if we didn't have a diversity committee? Because it seems to me 
like diversity is important in this space, the faculty affairs committee. It seems like diversity is important in the student success space. It seems like diversity. So I'm trying to actually demonstrate the extent to which diversity pervades or should be part of all these other conversations and not ghettoized to its own separate thing. They looked at me like I had three heads. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I think the, the issue is that it's not just that diversity work gets devalued. It's also that it's not seen as part of the broader structure of the institution, but something that's ancillary to it. Oh, yeah. And that is why I'm going to be reviewer number two forever with diversity committees. Yeah, and the fact that they looked at you like you had three heads is exactly the problem. Right. I tweeted, I'm just thinking about all the cool books I'm going to get to read because I I ignored the quote-unquote opportunity to be on a Uh diversity committee. And it got a ton of likes Uh on Twitter. And I was wondering, what if, you know, the administration saw it? But then I was like, if they did, what are they going to say? Number one, if they come at me, it just proves a point right. that they don't get it. And number two, I don't know. I thought it was pretty funny. So, <laughs> <laughs> And there's that. If you can't applaud that humor, then obviously you, need, you got a lot of work to do when it comes to your diversity palette and humor. That wraps us up for today. If you want to reach out and give your feedback on everything we talked about today, hit us up at podcast at facultydiversity.org. I'm Anthony Ocampo. You can hit me up at Anthony Ocampo on Twitter. And I'm Badia Ahad again. And I'm at Badia Ahad on Twitter. And I would actually love to hear about people's academic breakup stories. Yeah. And especially I would love to hear how people handled a successful academic breakup. I don't feel like there's enough language out there around that. So I'd love to know how people did that. Great. Until next time.